0: If you have a Bible with you this morning, and I certainly hope you brought one, open it to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9, I'm going to be considering this chapter over the next two weeks, I'm going to read the entire chapter this morning, and as I read it I remind you this is the inspired and inerrant word of God. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the book of the number of years, that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses the servant of God have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed His words which He spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by Your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his work, the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought us, brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city, your people, are called by your name. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. War desolations are decreed and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator the word of the lord When I was a little kid, I remember driving with my parents down to Orlando, Florida on a Disney vacation and spending hours and hours in the car with my little sister, what seemed to us at the time to be an eternity. I remember passing all of those states and counting down the miles until we finally arrived in Florida, and I can remember how happy and how excited we were when we pulled off at the visitor center just on the other side of the state line. As far as my sister and I were concerned, the journey was finally over and the celebrations had begun. But then I remember the sinking feeling when my dad told us to get back into the car and to buckle up because Orlando and Disney World was still a few hours away. You know, friends, a chapter we're studying in God's word this morning brought that memory back into my mind as we see the prophet Daniel and the people of Israel facing a similar kind of situation only on a far grander scale. Daniel had been taken into Babylonian captivity in the year 605 B.C., and now according to verses 1 and 2 of our text, we are in the first year of Darius the Mede, or King Cyrus as he's more commonly known. The year is 539 B.C., and Daniel has been in Babylon for 65 years, most of his life. He's probably about 80 years old at this point in the book and eagerly awaiting the end of exile, the beginning of a new chapter of peace and prosperity back in the promised land. The end is finally in sight. Daniel is looking forward to it. You know, just as we can count down the miles to our vacation destinations, the prophet Daniel was counting down to the end of the exile, inspired in this case by what he read in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, as you probably know, was another prophet of God who predicted the exile and had lived to see it come to pass. In Jeremiah 25 verses 11 to 12, we're told how long this time of punishment would be. As Jeremiah writes, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord. According to Jeremiah, the exile in Babylon would last for 70 years, or the symbolic equivalent of 10 sabbatical periods. And now having experienced the pain of exile firsthand for 65 years, having carefully studied this prophecy, Daniel knows that the finish line is in sight. The end of exile is the backdrop for everything written in this chapter. It's a theme that inspired Daniel to fall on his knees in reverent prayer in verses 1 to 19. It is a theme that will prompt the Lord to respond to that prayer in verses 20 to 27 with yet another apocalyptic prophecy that is known to us as the 70 weeks. Daniel and probably many of the Jews believe that a new era of peace and prosperity was just around the corner, but now God is going to inform them, He's going to inform His people that they still have a long way to go, many more trials and hardships to endure before the exile will truly come to an end. This is a chapter in God's Word that reminds us that God's time frame is often very different than our expectation. It calls to mind that old proverb, the mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. This chapter in front of us divides neatly into two different sections, Daniel's prayer in verses 1 to 19 and God's response to that prayer in verses 20 to 27. And with God's help, that's where we're heading this morning and also next week as we delve into this very interesting and enigmatic part of God's Word. Well, before we delve into the daunting prophecy of the 70 weeks, which is certainly what this chapter is best known for, I want to spend some time this morning examining the beautiful prayer that Daniel offers the Lord in verses 1-19. to A part of the chapter that is sadly often overlooked and overshadowed by the prophecy that follows. We've already seen in previous weeks that Daniel is a man devoted to prayer. And now in chapter 9, we get the rare privilege of peeking into Daniel's prayer closet and listening in on one of the most earnest and heartfelt prayers recorded anywhere in the Bible. From the beginning of his life to the very end of his life, we see in Daniel a model for prayer. A man who intentionally cultivated this spiritual discipline. A man who was always quick to go to the Lord during a time of crisis. We notice this first of all back in chapter 2 when King Nebuchadnezzar condemned all of the Babylonian wise men and when Daniel's immediate response to that crisis was to summon his three friends to an emergency prayer meeting. And then in chapter 9 we observed how Daniel's disciplined prayer life became the focus of an evil plot hatched against him, a plot that ultimately saw him thrown alive into the lion's den. Although Daniel was living very far from the promised land, he had not forgotten the Lord during his time in exile. He had intentionally fostered this spiritual discipline as the normal response to the God he deeply loved and the God who deeply loved him. Although some of the Jewish exiles had hung up their harps by the waters of Babylon, Daniel had successfully learned to sing the Lord's song in this foreign land. He was a godly man who deeply loved the Lord. He loved the people of God. Daniel was eagerly looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises even though he was too old at this point in his life to return to the land himself. Daniel's first impulse was always to seek God's face in prayer and we see here in the opening verses of chapter 9 that Daniel was also a man who loved to read and to study the Word of God. Prayer and the regular study of the Bible are two of the most important disciplines in the Christian life. And we can see in our text this morning how Daniel is a model for us in his devotional life. We also see here in our text how Bible study and prayer are intimately related to one another. How both of these things are necessary for a healthy and functional relationship with the Lord. Prayer, brothers and sisters, is really a dialogue between us and the Lord as He speaks to us through His Word and as we respond to Him concerning the things that He has revealed in these inspired pages. In a very real sense, prayer is a rightful response to the Word and the implication of this truth is really quite simple. If we want a better prayer life, if we want a more effective prayer life, we need to make sure that we are fully immersed in the study of God's Word. You know, when it comes to prayer, many Christians have embraced a somewhat mystical and unrealistic outlook as though a meaningful relationship with God involves hearing voices in the mind and engaging in long and drawn-out periods of silent listening and nursing a constant desire to receive special impressions and messages from the Holy Spirit. In reality, the primary way that God speaks to us as His people is through the Bible as the Holy Spirit takes these ancient words and applies them to our lives and to our situations in the here and the now. And so, brothers and sisters, the devotional life of the true believer ought to reflect the dynamic we see in this chapter, hearing the Lord speak through His inspired Word as we study it, and then responding to what we read in the Word of God with humble and reverent prayer. Daniel's prayer here in chapter 9 is, first of all, a response to what he has read in the Scripture. But secondly, we see in Daniel's prayer the importance of acknowledging our sin and of bringing our darkness out into the light where it can be forgiven and cleansed. Considering the larger context of this chapter, I find Daniel's response to the Word to be somewhat unexpected. It would be easy to understand a person fasting and wearing sackcloth and ashes at the beginning of exile, but here is the prophet Daniel at the very end of the exile, and instead of throwing a party to celebrate the soon fulfillment of God's promises, instead Daniel puts on his mourning garments, gets down on his knees with a heart of deep contrition and repentance before God. This aspect of the prayer is unexpected because of the nature of Jeremiah's prophecy, but it's also unexpected because now we have come to know something of Daniel's track record when it comes to sin and righteousness. A few weeks ago, you may remember, I mentioned Daniel as one of the rare characters in the Bible about whom nothing negative is ever mentioned. And so it comes as a bit of a surprise here to see Daniel of all people in sackcloth and ashes before the Lord and to hear these words coming out of his mouth in verse 4 and following. Oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near, those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery they have committed against you. After invoking God's covenant name and worshiping Yahweh for the great and awesome God that he is, Daniel immediately begins to confess his sins as a member of God's covenant people. Even though this man was a young teenager when he was taken into Babylonian captivity, even though Daniel is not directly responsible for the idolatry and the blasphemy that moved God's hand to discipline Israel, Daniel openly acknowledges himself to be a sinner in need of grace and recognizes the corporate and the covenantal dimension of his relationship with God. You know, in our modern age of rampant individualism, where everything is about me and myself and I, there's a great deal that we can learn here in this prayer about our corporate responsibility before God and before one another in the community of faith. As Christians, we are not merely individuals who have been saved in order to have a private and personal relationship with God. We are part of a larger body called the church, and as such, we have been brought into a larger covenantal community. As the Apostle Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 15, the church body is a single unit that's composed of many different members, men and women who are bound together under the same covenant of grace, who have been brought together into the same eternal family. That's why when one member in the church rejoices, we all rejoice together. When one member suffers in the body, we all suffer together. When one member sins and falls off the true path, there's a sense in which we're all affected by it. At certain times, God will discipline us as individuals, but at other times, God's discipline will descend upon the entire church family as a result of our corporate rebellion and corporate disobedience to the Word of God. That's what happened in ancient Israel when God disciplined the nation for their sins. He didn't merely send the worst offenders off into exile. He sent all of the people off into exile, including many of the best and the most righteous. Men like Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah who suffered alongside everyone else. During the Babylonian exile, God's judgment fell upon the righteous and the wicked as the Lord punished the nation as a corporate and as a covenantal entity. You no, know, friends, if we are reading this chapter, if we are looking at Daniel's prayer through the lens of our own Western individualism, the sight of this man Daniel down on his knees in sackcloth and ashes will seem very strange indeed, if not totally inappropriate. But when we come to understand the corporate aspect of God's dealings with His covenant people, this outward display of repentance and contrition will begin to make perfect sense. Although it is certainly right for us to confess the sins we've committed individually, the sins that we commit in our own private and personal lives, there are times when it is appropriate for us to commit to confess the sins that we have committed corporately. Perhaps at the level of the local church perhaps at the level of our larger denominations, perhaps even at the level of our nation as a whole. And I think Andrew gave us a good example of that a few moments ago. When we think, for example, of the great evil of abortion in Canada, the dozens of innocent children that are massacred every day without mercy and without the protection of law, it ought to drive us to our knees in repentance before God at the national level, even if we have not personally committed the act. When we think about the systemic sins that still persist within the North American church, sins such as racism and materialism and sexual license and a lack of concern for the oppressed, it ought to drive us to our knees in confession and repentance before God, even if we do not consider ourselves to be directly responsible. As a member of God's covenant people, Daniel recognized his corporate responsibility. And if we have been brought under that same covenant of grace as a member of the New Testament church, we should also recognize that we are our brother's keeper. We have a corporate and a shared responsibility before the Lord. You know, in our culture, we don't often speak about the corporate implications of the gospel. But when you stop and think about it, this principle of corporate and covenantal solidarity lies at the very heart and root of the Christian faith. Take, for example, the doctrine of original sin, the biblical teaching that you and I are guilty of Adam's sin, that we are polluted by Adam's sin, even though we weren't physically there with Adam in the Garden of Eden. The individualist in us resists such a teaching from God's Word. It cries out that it's unfair and unjust, but yet there it is in the Bible. And in reality, you and I bear responsibility for Adam's sin. And on the flip side is the doctrine of imputation. The wonderful teaching that you and I are exonerated and cleansed through the death of Jesus Christ even though we weren't there physically when He died. Even though we didn't personally suffer and die on the cross. You see, friends, in the Bible, there is an undeniable corporate covenantal dimension to God's plan. And I think we get a glimpse of that truth right here in Daniel's prayer. A righteous individual who confesses the sins of his people and who takes his place among them in sackcloth and in ashes. You know, friends, when God's hand of discipline comes down, the human impulse is to do everything we can in order to justify and vindicate ourselves, but Daniel makes no such attempt here in his prayer. In fact, we see this man doing the exact opposite. Far from trying to justify sin or to vindicate himself or his nation, Daniel simply acknowledges the sins of his people and he confesses them openly and honestly to God. Some people might read this and think that Daniel had good reason to blame God for his life circumstances. That Daniel had good reason to get angry with God because of everything he had to endure in Babylon. But from Daniel's perspective, the exile was neither cruel nor unfair. This was not the barbaric cruelty of a vengeful, capricious deity. It was, according to the prophet Daniel, a just and righteous response to a wicked people who had rebelled against the law. Look at what he says in verse 7. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. Again in verse 9 we see the same theme. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness for we have rebelled against Him nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His teachings which He set before us through His servant the prophets. In this prayer Daniel intermingles genuine worship with a genuine confession of sin contrasting the righteousness of God with the wickedness of men and agreeing unreservedly with God's verdict. Really, friends, that's what it means to confess our sins. To confess is to agree with God's verdict. To say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin in His Word. When We come before a holy and righteous God in prayer. We must recognize who He is and who we are. Acknowledging freely and openly we are sinners in continual need of His grace. And saying to the Lord, give us clean hands and a pure heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. When we approach a holy God in prayer, we are to confess our sins and to say as Jesus taught us, forgive us our trespasses, even as we forgive those who trespass against us. Daniel's prayer teaches us something about our response to the Word. It teaches us something about the response or our responsibility and corporate confession of sin. But thirdly, this passage teaches us something about the sovereignty of God as it relates to prayer, and thus bringing us once again to the overarching theme of the book, which is the meticulous sovereignty of God over all things. You know, one common objection that is often voiced against a high view of divine sovereignty is that such a doctrine will inevitably diminish our evangelistic fervor and our desire to approach God in intercessory prayer. The absolute sovereignty of God is often pitted against the necessity of prayer and evangelism, and the objection often goes something like this. If God is truly in control of all things that happen in the universe, right down to the smallest sparrow that falls to the ground, the smallest, most insignificant speck of hair on your head, if that is really true, then what need is there for us to pray about anything or to intercede on behalf of anyone or to share the gospel with a single soul? If it is really true that God will accomplish His sovereign will in one way or another, what difference does it make whether or not we pray? Or whether or not we evangelize. I have heard that objection many, many times. Perhaps you have too. But as someone who believes wholeheartedly that the God of the Bible works all things according to the counsel of His will, I am greatly encouraged by the example of our brother Daniel. I don't think we could find anyone else in all of the Scripture who is more committed to the doctrine of divine sovereignty than Daniel. I don't think we can find anyone in all of the Scripture who is more committed to the discipline of prayer. Now some people want to introduce this conflict between prayer and divine sovereignty and to force us on the horns of a dilemma. But for Daniel, there is no dilemma. There is no contradiction between these things. And that's because Daniel has come to understand that the God who ordains the ends also ordains the means to accomplish those ends. Throughout the Bible it is very clear one of the means that God has sovereignly and wisely ordained in order to accomplish His sovereign purposes in the world is this precious gift of prayer. And what that means very practically, friends, is that those of us who are committed to a high High view of divine sovereignty should be equally committed to the disciplines of prayer and evangelism. As Christians, we accept the word of God when it says that God will have mercy on whom you have mercy. But that biblical teaching does not stop us from for praying for the non-believers God has brought in our lives, nor does it prevent us from sharing the gospel with anybody and with everybody. As Christians, we believe the word when it says that God raises up rulers and removes rulers according to his sovereign decree. But that doesn't stop us from praying diligently for our government and for our country. It doesn't stop us on election day from going to the polls and casting our vote. Very instructive to consider the example of Daniel in this regard. As a prophet of God, Daniel knows beyond any shadow of doubt, God will fulfill the word that he spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. God will bring his people back into the land. There's not even a hint, there's not even a shadow of doubt about that in Daniel's mind. But yet here in chapter 9 of our text, we see the Lord's prophet down on his knees in sackcloth and ashes, confessing sin, pleading with God to fulfill his word and to bring about the fulfillment of his promise. Brothers and sisters, when we are thinking in biblical categories, any perceived contradiction between prayer and sovereignty fades away and Daniel stands in Scripture as proof that both of these convictions can comfortably coexist in the life of the obedient Christian. How sad in this day of doctrinal weakness and compromise that so many Christians see prayer as little more than a form of manipulation, as little more than a means to twist God's arm, to bend God's will, to persuade God to do whatever we want him to do. The truth is that God has given us prayer for a very different purpose. It's not we who use prayer to shape God. It's God who uses prayer to shape us, to persuade us, to bend us into greater conformity with His purpose and His plan. Presbyterian minister Tim Keller, who wrote a magnificent book on prayer a couple years ago, has rightly said that the basic purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to mine, but to mold my will to His. And once you understand that simple truth, friends, it will revolutionize your approach to prayer. For you'll come to see that prayer is not a manipulative tool to get God onto our agenda, to get God moving in our direction, but rather prayer is intended to get us onto God's agenda and to get us moving in His direction. And that is the direction that is spelled out very clearly and very plainly in the written word. One final thing I would point out to you this morning from Daniel's prayer is the motivation that, it, that uh, undergirds these words from first to last, namely, the awesome glory and majesty of God. In a prayer like this that has to do with the exercise of divine discipline, we might expect Daniel to make his appeal to God on the basis of human merit and human achievement. In other words, we might expect Daniel to admit at the outset of the prayer that the exile came about as a result of Israel's rebellion, but then to go from that starting point and to plead for God's deliverance on the basis of human obedience, perhaps pointing out all of the ways that Israel had learned her lesson in Babylon and how she turned over a new leaf. If disobedience to the law was the reason why the nation was exiled in the first place, then perhaps obedience to the law would be the main thing that would motivate God to act in this situation and to bring the exile to an end. But you'll notice here, friends, that Daniel never once asked God to fulfill his covenant promises on the basis of human merit and achievement. Never once in this prayer does Daniel suggest that God should bring salvation to Israel because of good deeds and good behavior. Quite to the contrary, in verses 17 to 19, Daniel cries out, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes, see our desolations and the city called by your name, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy it's my favorite verse in the whole chapter i'm going to say it again we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness but because of your mercy hear oh lord forgive oh lord pay attention oh lord and act don't delay for your sake because your city and your people are called by your name you get the point do you hear the repeated refrain in those concluding verses that reveal Daniel's inner motive? Don't do this for us, Lord. Don't do this because of anything good that we have done. Do this for the sake of your own name. Do this to the praise of your own glory. And Over and over, Daniel appeals in this prayer to the name of God, to the glory of God, to the majesty of God, and never once to the righteousness of man. This is a thoroughly God-centered, God-saturated prayer. It's a prayer that is fixated and motivated by one overarching concern, and that concern is the glory and the majesty of God displayed on the earth. Through this prayer we see Daniel as a man utterly consumed by the glory of God and even though he lived some 600 years before the coming of Jesus the Messiah Daniel understood very clearly the nature of salvation just as we understand it that salvation comes to the exiled sinner by grace alone through faith and not as a result of works so that no one can boast. Whether in the Old Covenant era or in the New Covenant era, God has always and only had one way of rescuing lost exiles, and that is by grace. He does not bring us out of exile because of anything good that He sees or that He foresees in us. He saves us for the sake of His own name. He saves us for the sake of His own glory. He is the God of the covenant, the God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love. And so I wonder, friends, when we approach our God in prayer, when we intercede on behalf of others, both inside and outside of the local church family, whether the glory of God is the driving motive and force in our hearts or whether we are driven and motivated by lesser things. Many of us, I hope all of us, pray Regularly for different concerns, we pray for the healing of the sick. We pray for the salvation of the lost. We pray for religious liberty, both here in Canada and abroad. But I wonder, brothers and sisters, how often we pray according to the pattern that is set here by our brother Daniel. Oh Lord, would you save so and so for the sake of your own glory, and for the sake of your own name. Oh, Father, would you glorify your name through the healing of sister so-and-so. Oh, God, would you give us righteous leaders in Parliament so that your glory and your majesty may fill this our dominion from sea to sea. So often when we approach our God in prayer, we pray with motives that are good and right, but not with motives that are ultimate. And so it's very common. We all do this. We pray that God would lessen the pain in somebody's life. We pray that God would increase happiness in someone else's life. We pray that God would provide for someone's financial well-being. And very often, that is as high as our motives go. Prayers that are rooted in a desire for our own personal well-being and for the happiness and flourishing of others around us. You know, friends, one of the things that God reminded me in my study of Daniel's prayer this week is that we need to take our motives up a notch when we pray and when we intercede on behalf of others. Recognizing that the chief end of man is to glorify God and in glorifying God to enjoy Him forever. It is not wrong to pray for someone's personal well-being or health or happiness, but we must remember happiness is not the ultimate concern. What's ultimate is the glory of our triune God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, friends, we've got our feet wet this morning by looking at Daniel's prayer here in the ninth chapter. Lord willing, next week we're going to return to this chapter and examine the more difficult part of this text, the prophecy of the 70 weeks.